Matthew 2, 13-23 Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, and take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child, to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, and take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called the Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning, and, and congratulations to all of the graduates that we have today in our sanctuary. And let me give a warm welcome to the, the families that are also here with the graduates, and if that does mean that the graduation will take you away from the One Ancient Hope community, we're, we're very grateful that you've been able to be um, a part of this community for these last few years. And as the community that is called, created, collected, crafted by the word of the Lord, let us turn before God in prayer before we look at this passage. God our Father, we thank you for your word. I pray, Father, that these words that follow would be faithful to your intentions for this passage, Lord, and that through your Spirit, you would apply the truths of this passage and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to our head, to our hands, to our hearts. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, in this passage, we find three specific times that, that Matthew tells us explicitly that the life of Christ has fulfilled things spoken in the Old Testament. And these three fulfillments actually follow the three key plot points of the passage. And this is exactly what we should have come to expect from Matthew, as we've talked about in our previous sermons what Matthew is doing is presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of the story of Israel. And here in this passage, we find a fulfillment. We find scripture fulfilled when Jesus leaves Bethlehem for Egypt, when Herod kills the children of Bethlehem and those of the surrounding region, and when Jesus returns and settles in Nazareth. And so let us look at each of these fulfillments in turn. The first brings us to Joseph. Just as the Magi were warned, warned about the evil plans of Herod, so Joseph is warned in a dream. 
An angel visits Joseph and tells him, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And immediately what happens? Joseph arises. Joseph flees to Egypt with Jesus and with Mary. And commenting on this event, Matthew tells us, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And the quotation that we find here is from Hosea 11.1. God here is speaking in the mouth of the prophet and he's fondly remembering the Exodus, his rescue of his people from the bondage of Egypt. Yet here we find that this child, Jesus, has taken on the role of Old Testament Israel. He, in a sense, has come to, to represent God's people. He's come to stand in for God's people. His life recapitulates. It righteously redoes. It rightly reenacts all that has come before in the history of Israel. And so Jesus here appears as the true Israel, as the true Son of God. But this brings us to surprising results. For instance, the, the theologian Peter Lightheart, he asks an interesting question when commenting on this passage. He asks, why here would we find this quote from Hosea? Why would it be placed when Jesus goes to Egypt rather than when Jesus comes back from Egypt? Wouldn't it make more sense to put this quote somewhere around verse 20? Well, Lightheart makes an important observation. He's telling us that Matthew is not only identifying Jesus with Israel, he's also identifying Israel with Egypt. As Lightheart writes of God's actions here, he must bring Israel out of Israel. He must call Israel, Jesus, his son, from the Egypt of Herod's kingdom. Things have gotten so bad with the people of God that they have become identified with the Egypt of the book of Exodus. And this is no exaggeration or hyperbole on the part of Matthew. The conditions that the Israelites fled by night in the Exodus, well, they overlap considerably with the conditions that Joseph and his family are fleeing here. Why are they leaving? Because King Herod seeks to kill the male children. He's ordered the killing of all of the male children in Bethlehem and the surrounding region who are two years old and younger. And the reader of the Old Testament has seen this before. If we look to Exodus chapter 1, we find Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, issuing a similar order. An order that all of the male children birthed by the Hebrew children should be killed. Yes, we have seen this before. Israel has become the very thing from which it fled. Israel, the people who were exiled, Israel has become a place of exile. They themselves have become the exile. But Matthew, sorry, Matthew pushes this point even further in his second explicit fulfillment quotation. Commenting on Herod's murder of the children, Matthew tells us, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. 
And the quotation here is from Jeremiah 31, 15, and this speaks of the kingdom of Judah and their exile into Babylon. As, as New Testament scholar Richard Hayes writes, Rama in the book of Jeremiah appears as a staging ground for the, for the deportation of the Judean captives to Babylon. We find that Rama serves as a kind of processing location for the kingdom of Judah as they're forcibly removed from their homes and sent in to Babylon. And, and Jeremiah relates this devastation to the death of Rachel in Genesis 35. But again, strictly speaking, these children are not in exile. They live in and near Bethlehem, which is the very city of David. Yet, figuratively, they are in Babylon. Recall the third and final grouping of the genealogy in Matthew 1. If you remember, there's, there's three sets of genealogies, and the third one begins with the deportation to Babylon. But in this genealogy, we don't hear, we don't find any return from Babylon. Instead, the genealogy ends with the birth of Christ, which we'll return to later, but what's implied here is, figuratively speaking, they are still in Babylon. Or, perho- or perhaps more accurately, they have become Babylon. They have become the exilers. In the treatment of these children, they show themselves to be a people who has exiled itself. Israel has become Egypt. Israel has become Babylon. Israel has become exile. The people of God have become no different than the nations in which they were exiled into. And as a reader, we must submit ourselves to the very same critique. When we read this, we need to ask ourselves how we as the church have exiled ourselves. How have we as the people of God become Egypt? How have we become Babylon? How have we become a place of exile. And to answer that question, that means that we will need to submit both the church and our culture to the critique of Scripture. And the particular sin that this passage presents us with is Herod's killing of the male male children that are two years and younger. And to look at this text and to not speak about the issue of abortion Well, that could be bending and submitting to the fear of our modern cultural moment. However, to only speak of abortion here, well, that could very well be to hide behind a smug and prideful self-righteousness that ignores the ways that the same deep sins can express themselves in a number of different ways, even in the church. And so let us let this text push us to look at the issue of abortion, but not only that of abortion. Scripture calls each of us to account, and it forces us to look, each of us, at the deep issues of our heart. And going forward, I want to follow some arguments by the Notre Dame law professor, O. Carter Sneed, and and this is from his recent and very important book, What It Means to Be Human. And Sneed points out that the way that we approach the issue of abortion, it has a lot to do with the way that we understand personhood. And perhaps the key question in navigating issues of abortion is this. 
is the fetus a human person? If no, then it would be hard to condemn the practice. If yes, then it would certainly strike us as an unethical practice. I think perhaps that's a, that's a fairly non-controversial pair of statements. And wherever you stand on this issue, I, I hope you do believe that all persons, all who possess personhood, do have a right to life. So then the question is, what exactly is personhood? And to hold that the fetus is not a person is to believe that there's a certain set of criteria, a certain set of check marks that a human organism must meet in order to qualify as a human person. For instance, there's a well-known article by the philosopher Mary and Warren, and Warren lays out at least five criteria that she believes qualifies one for personhood. And here I'm quoting Sneed's summary. One, consciousness and the capacity to feel pain. Two, reasoning, the developed capacity to solve new and relatively complex problems. Three, self-motivated activity. Four, the ability to communicate information on indefinitely many possible topics. And five, the presence of self-concepts and self-awareness. And Warren thinks that possibly the first two of these criteria would qualify someone, for, qualify someone as a person, but she's more confident that you would need the first three. But regardless, she would contend that, that none of these criteria are met by the fetus. And so the fetus is absolutely not a person by these criteria. And we might disagree with this list, but it's hard to imagine supporting abortion without a form of this logic. And perhaps we think it's permissible in the first trimester, but not the third. In that case, certain benchmarks have been reached by the third trimester to qualify the fetus as a person, benchmarks that weren't there in the first, and that would grant a right to life. In both cases, personhood would be something that's achieved. You are a person when you meet these qualifications, when you can do this or that, when you possess this or that. And of course, right off the bat, there are some problems here. There are many adult humans who would not meet these characteristics. Due to certain mental or physical circumstances, they are unable to meet these criteria. Have they then forfeited their personhood? If not, then, then please do recognize a deep inconsistency in the way we're using and understanding personhood. We have to realize that we're always working with operative concepts of, of things, even if we don't realize it. For instance, consider a frequently cited passage from the Supreme Court. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood were they formed under the compulsion of the state. And so here the court appears to avoid taking a stance on personhood. And specifically here, that the personhood in question would be that of the fetus. They understand freedom as the right to define all of reality according to one's wishes and one's preferences. And this freedom extends to the parents as they choose whether or not to define the developing fetus as a person. However, in making it a matter open to definition by the parents, a position is already being taken. 
There's no neutrality here. In the minds of the parents, personhood here might not be scored or evaluated according to a set of criteria like the criteria we find with Warren. Instead, the parents, according to their own wishes and preferences, may decide whether the fetus would qualify as a person. Here, too, then, personhood is something that must be achieved, must be earned, must be won, and can be denied. To choose to dismiss the question of personhood in this way is already to decide that it's something that must be achieved and can be denied. But if this is true, it not only applies to the fetus, but also our neighbor down the street. And that's why it's important to realize there are many, many ways that we can fail to recognize the personhood of another. The political scientist Jason Blakely is, is very helpful here. He tells us, for example, that the market economy has become one of the key ways that we've come to understand all of reality. He points out that it's even come to define our personhood. As Blakely tells us, we apply economic theory, in particular rational choice theory, and we come to see humans as self-interest preference maximizers. With this lens, we look upon the world and what we see are countless individuals working to maximize their own benefit at the expense of others. And what do we think? Well, we better do the same thing before someone else maximizes their benefit at my expense. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, and so I better follow suit. And the thing is, there's no real place for virtue, for sacrifice, for service. Any nights serving at a homeless shelter, well, they're no more virtuous than nights spent at the casino. Volunteers just happen to prefer the feelings that come with service more than they prefer the feelings that come with other activities. The volunteers are just as self-interested as anyone else. And so let's just do what we want. And besides, the invisible hand of the market will work to make all of our self-interest work out for good anyways. But Blakely, he, he issues a strong warning here. When we interpret our personhood as mere self-interest maximizers, well, that changes us. Blakely writes the following, and, and this is a bit of a, of a long quote, but it puts the reach of our market mindset into the proper perspective. Blakely writes, in the 1990s, the psychologist Philip Cushman had reported increasing cases of a new kind of empty consumer self showing up in clinical practice. The self viewed all social relations as economic market relations and all personal problems as surmountable by consuming the right products and achieving a desired lifestyle advertised in celebrity culture. For this kind of self, even deeply personal relationships were essentially regarded as consumption choices. Marriages, families, friendships, workplaces, schools, churches, and governments were all sites of self-interested calculations. Indeed, there was no such thing as a shared school, family, or civic interest. Instead, everything was subsumable under the metaphor of loose networks of individuals vying for their uppermost preference. It's important to note that the, the, the observations that Blakely notes here, the observations by Cushman, they were published in 1990, which came just two years before the Supreme Court statement that we read earlier. And I would argue that these two statements 
are actually two sides of the same coin, which leads us to the third and final explicit fulfillment in the Matthew passage. The angel appears again to Joseph once Herod has died. He directs Joseph to return to the land of Israel, and eventually, through other angelic warnings, Joseph and his family eventually settle in Nazareth. And as Matthew narrates this third moment, he says the following about Jesus. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And notice here, unlike before, Matthew does not mention a singular prophetic author. Instead, he, he sort of gestures generally to the Old Testament by way of the term prophets. And strictly speaking, there's no specific prophecy in the Old Testament that says this. Nowhere in the Old Testament will you find an explicit promise that says the Christ will be called a Nazarene. And certainly Matthew knows this. So what is he doing? Well, to again appeal to Peter Lightheart, Matthew is instructing us to read Scripture poetically, even punningly, if we're going to understand how Jesus fulfills the prophets. And there's several Old Testament connections that are presented to us by calling Jesus a Nazarene, and and I want to look at two specifically. The first is the name, the role of, of, the, the name of Nazarene, and what it's going to do is draw our attention to the Old Testament role of Nazarite. Nazarene, Nazarite. And to be a Nazarite, in theory, is to be consecrated to God in a special way, and it came with stringent regulations, what could be eaten, what could be drunk, what could be done. And even more, to speak of a Nazarite in the world of the Old Testament is to draw attention to a special figure, the figure of Samson. Samson was called by God to be a Nazarite but he constantly broke the Nazarite vows. So then why would Matthew be alluding to Samson here? Well, I believe there are at least two reasons. The first is that Samson was often selfish and impulsive. He points to the breakdown of Israel's leadership, something that we still see at the time of Matthew. And secondly, Samson is the very last judge before we find the monarchy, before the kingship of Saul and the true kingship of David. Samuel did all of these things in the time and in the book of Judges. And four times in the book of Judges, we find the following phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In the book of Judges, it actually ends with this line creating an anticipation for the next phase of Israel's history. So on the one hand, we have no king, but there will be a king soon. But on the other hand, functionally speaking, everyone is their own king. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Everyone is their own boss. Everyone is their own leader. Everyone alone makes their own rules for their lives. And it's as much as to say each of them has become a Herod. It's a nation of countless self-serving kings, but they're on the brink of the coming kingship of David. And this is exactly what we have here in Matthew 2. Israel has become Egypt, has become Babylon, has become a nation of kings, each who does what is right in their own eyes. They've become a nation of Herod. Herod is just simply the most powerful of these self serving kings. And so again, as we read this passage, we must submit ourselves 
to this same critique, how have we as the church exiled ourselves? How have we become like Babylon in Egypt? How have we become a loose conglomeration of countless self-seeking kings? Well, we've already seen this. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's, one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. At the heart of liberty is the right to maximize your own self-interest because that's what everyone else is doing and the invisible hand of the market will work out all our self-interest for good anyways. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In the modern world, regardless of your social position, we're all encouraged to be Herod. We're all encouraged to be our own self-serving kings. And the thing is, we're surprised. We're told to act like Herod, and we're surprised to find out that we actually treat each other like Herod. We have envisioned a cruel world, a battlefield of self-interested competitors, and yet we're surprised when we find ourselves in just such a place. We envision a cruel world of competitors, and we're surprised when parents are hesitant to bring children into just such a place. To quote the wise words of C.S. Lewis, in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chess and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. We tell people that they are self-interest maximizers and we're surprised when they act for their own self-interest at the expense of others. We tell people to do their own thing independent of what anyone else might think or do and we're actually surprised when they go on and, and live this way. We tell people to make their own meaning and define reality on their own terms, and we're angry when they refuse to be called to account. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. But all of this makes sense if personhood is not a gift. It all makes sense if personhood must be earned, achieved, grasped, won, and maintained. No one has a right to make a claim upon me or limit my self-interest seeking. No one makes a claim upon me to recognize their personhood. I may or I may not. That's because to recognize you as a person, well, that will put limits on my freedom. It will put limits on how and what I can buy and sell. It will put limits on how I live my life. It will make limits on the, the meanings that I can give to things. It will limit my pursuit of self-interest because if you are a person, you make a claim upon me. And to make a claim upon me is to limit me. Consider, for instance, the character of, of Carl Lindstrom in, in Willa Cather's novel, O Pioneers, a novel that I think is actually more timely now than when it was first written. Carl is a childhood friend of, of Alexandra Bergson. He's traveled across the country seeking fortune. And this is in contrast to the enduring commitment of, of Alexandria to the place and to the people of her Nebraska prairie. And thinking on these things, Alexandria says to Carl that she wishes that she had his freedom, that she wishes that she had his lack of constraints. And in response, Carl shakes his head 
and mournfully says, freedom so often means that one isn't needed anywhere. Freedom so often means that one isn't needed anywhere. To be needed is a privilege. To be limited is a privilege. To be needed and limited means that you are a part of a community. And to return to Sneed, he speaks of neediness as a summons. Speaking of the pregnant mother, he writes, her neediness is a summons to everyone who is able to come to her aid and extend the same gestures of just generosity, hospitality, and accompaniment in suffering on which they have depended and from which they have benefited in their own lives as vulnerable, dependent beings. The mother is a person. The child in her womb is a person. The clerk across the counter failing to scrape by on their hourly wage is a person. The Christian truth is that personhood is not achieved but given. It's a gift. It's not earned. It's not won. The child in the womb is a person because there is nothing that a human organism must do to qualify as a person. The mother who desperately needs the help of this church community is a person and her needs puts demands upon us. Let the church never affirm the personhood of the unborn child and yet deny the personhood of the mother. If we do, we are also understanding personhood as something that must be earned and achieved. If the church is not responding to the full summons of personhood, how can we expect the culture to respond any differently? To be human is to be a person, and to be a person is to make a claim upon others. Our only alternative is a loose conglomeration of Herods, of self-seeking kings. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so where do we go from here? Well, let's return to the one foretold to be a Nazarene. Commentators point out that, that Nazarene is close to the Hebrew word netzer, that Matthew intends a connection here, and netzer is the Hebrew word for branch. And there's several places in the Old Testament that the Christ, that the Messiah is described as a branch, a branch from the family, from the house of David. For instance, consider Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. A branch, a netzer, a Nazarene will come from the stump of Jesse, and Jesse is David's father. And why is it important that this branch would shoot out? Because it tells us that the Davidic kingship, the true kingship, has not died. All of us, we are a people of countless false kings, but we are called to look to the branch, to the one true king. Even when all seems lost, this is the king who will reign on the throne of, the uh, throne of David forever. But who exactly is this true king? Well, he's no mere human king. And this brings us back to the first explicit fulfillment passage, out of Egypt, I called my son. New Testament scholar Richard Hayes, he makes an important point here that when Matthew quotes the words of Hosea, we have God himself naming Jesus as the son of God. God himself saying, this child is my son. And so what does that have to do with personhood and with kingship? 
Well, remember last week, and we don't have time to retrace the whole argument here, but following Augustine, we talked about how all of creation was made through the Word of God, through the Son of God. And what that means is that the Son's pattern of receiving the divine nature from the Father and turning back to the Father in love, well, that forms the pattern of all creation, just as the Son is from and to the Father, so creation is from and to God. And so the Son is the pattern, is the mold of all of creation. And so his receiving and turning back translates into the perfect human life. This receiving and turning to the Father in the love of the Holy Spirit, this is just what it is to be the divine Son. And what does this mean? Well, it means the one in whom we were created, the Son, received his personhood from God. The Son did not earn his personhood. The Son received from God and turned back to God in love. Even for the divine person of the Son, a personhood is not something achieved, but something given. However, in the greatest of contrast to the Son, we find the first human sin. We find the rejection of this gift. Adam and Eve are meant to respond in gladness and gratefulness to the gift of life, to the many gifts of creation, to the gift of God himself, and instead, they're suspicious of God. They falsely believe that God has withheld the best gifts from them. They want to earn, to win, to achieve, to strive for their personhood. Rather than receive their personhood from God, they want to do it on their own. So what is sin? Well, in one important sense, it's rejecting the God-given gift of personhood. It's a lack of trust in God's goodness and graciousness. It's a lack of trust that God really does love us, really does intend the best for us. Sin is a rejection of personhood as a gift from God. Sin is a commitment to achieve personhood in our own way, according to our own demands, according to what we think is best. And so deep down, when we look into our own hearts, it's not just that we don't recognize the personhood of others, we don't recognize the personhood of ourselves. And so what is sin? Well, in an important way, sin is striving for or making others strive for what God has already given to us. Not even the divine son earns or achieves his personhood. And so God certainly wouldn't expect that from us. I remember in a, a missions organization that I, uh, we served with before, there, there was a man that I knew and <clears throat> He was always fully engaged to the person that he was talking to, no matter who that would be. I remember being at one thing where he was talking to the president of the organization, full focus and attention, and I look back 15 minutes later, and he's giving that same full focus and attention to a six-year-old child. What can enable this? Well, first and foremost, not worrying about our personhood being something we have to achieve, not worrying if we've done enough, if we've made enough money, if we have a good enough resume, if we have the right degrees, if we have the right connections with the right people. No, it's knowing that God has already given me everything I could ever seek to prove, to earn, to achieve. Then, then we're free to let the personhood of others and even and especially those who can do nothing for our own self-interest, letting all make demands upon us 
and limiting us. Yet the Christian conviction is that because of sin, we can only do this through Christ. Because sin is the rejection of the gift of creation, the only way to actually destroy our pride is to make salvation a gift as well. If salvation was something that we earned, this would only reinforce all of these dangerous tendencies. If salvation was a matter of living at a certain quality, meeting certain criteria, then we would be right back to earning and achieving our personhood. This would only reinforce our sin. However, Jesus' recapitulation, his right redoing of the story of Israel, is also his right redoing of the story of each of our lives. The Son in whom we were made became human and lived the life that we should have lived. He really did love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He really did love his neighbor as himself. He really did recognize the personhood of each human he met and responded in love to the summons of their need. So much so that he responded to our very greatest need. Because of sin, we're separated from God. We are like the Israel that Christ came into. We are exiled from God. And so how does Christ respond? Well, not only by living the perfect human life on our behalf, but also taking the punishment of the cross, the punishment that we, not he, deserves. And Christ offers both as a gift freely offering to us his perfect standing before God and his payment of our debt, of our sin, bringing us from exile and back to God. And all we must do is reach out and receive it by faith. But of course, to receive it, you have to know that you need it. We must acknowledge and repent and confess all the ways that we have not recognized the personhood of others. Perhaps self-interest has ruled your financial practices. Perhaps you have had an abortion. Perhaps you have ignored those in need. Perhaps you are cold to your spouse when you feel like you're not getting a good bargain in the relationship. Perhaps you go, for example, to academic conferences dismissing those lower on the pecking order and only trying to get the attention of the big names in the field. No matter what you've done, each of us is Herod. And the church is the community that recognizes that. The church is the people who realize that everything is a gift, especially the salvation of Jesus Christ. And so God calls us to receive what we could never earn. He calls us to receive the free gift of salvation in Christ. He calls us to receive our true personhood as the sheer gift that it truly is. We are that community that recognizes the gracious reign of only one king, Christ Jesus, and not the kingship of the self. There are then only two kings in the final analysis, Christ the king who gives us all things as gift, and the exhausted king, the self, who must earn and achieve and win all things at the expense of others all the time. The one kingdom is a battlefield of self-interested competitors, the other a place of graciousness and hospitality and peace. The one kingdom is the exile of Egypt, of Babylon, of stumps with no branches or shoots, of separation from our good and gracious God. The other is the very kingdom of God, 
All that we have, we have received. Christ has responded to our greatest need, the self-imposed exile of sin brought about by being our own kings. And because we can rest fully and wholly in the confidence of Christ's gift of salvation, so also we can receive and respond to the neediness of others. We have not earned nor achieved God's love or favor, not by our own work. And so let us not make others work for our love and favor. And the kingdom of Christ all is gift. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you have done on our behalf in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to receive that, Lord, as the true and great and dignifying gift that it is. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.